Ah, my people, what's up? It's Vince. You're listening to another episode of The Happy Place. That's right, another one. I keep just ripping them out. Um, I have a ton in queue, and I had like this beautiful schedule set, and then COVID happened, and then some of the interviews I've had are so relevant to right now, I'm pushing them forward. Um, but I got so many great interviews that are just kind of waiting. And so keep listening. And uh, we got people like David Hawkins. We're going to have people like Rich McClure, uh, one of just like the greatest St. Louis guys ever. We have uh, stuff about health, like being gluten free. And um, a guy named Clint, where he started a gluten free waffle company. Um, uh, a lady named Paula who's got just a huge following um, on gluten-free and being gluten-free and the advantages of of eating healthy. And then we're going to have more mental health stuff with my friend Sam. And that's going to be really good as we enter out of COVID. So a shameless ask here because I normally would never do this. I'm just not that guy, but I'm going to ask, okay? Can you please subscribe? And then give this show a rating, add some comments. And it's not for my own sake or my vanity, but it's because of the way the algorithms work for podcasts that the more subscribers, the more ratings, and then the more uh, comments just helps boost the visibility of this podcast for then when someone types in like leadership or entrepreneurship. Uh, so if you don't mind doing that, again, I hate asking, but if you don't mind uh, doing that, share an episode with a friend, you know, I don't know. I think it's good. But today, gather around the kids around the phone because this episode is for them. This episode is awesome. Uh, I got to interview the Loggerhead Marine Center down in Juneau Beach. And so a little backstory about that. Uh, we go to Juneau Beach every year. It's where we want to move to. Uh, we're going to be there, uh, you know, Lord willing, this summer for a while. And every year we've gone to the Marine Center and we, we just walk around and we see these sea turtles that they're uh, rehabilitating. And it's just been this place that's been very near and dear to my whole family's heart. We love the ocean and we love marine life. And then to get it even more specific, we love sea turtles. And if you know my wife, you know how much she loves sea turtles and just the beach in general. Um, but sea turtles are, are just a very important part of our family. And so I got to have this amazing conversation about marine life, about uh, sea turtles and the different types of sea turtles and what rehabilitation looks like. I think this is going to be incredibly fascinating, both for adults and kids. And we're all e-learning. So consider this part of their science. Um there's just so much good stuff in here. And at the end, we talk about how we can all take care of this world and this planet. And I know a lot of times here in the Midwest, we get a little bit, how should I say, maybe uh, detached from what happens to our trash and where it goes. And this is a really good reminder that we as a world, we're all in this together. And what I do here in the Midwest and St. Louis affects, uh, you know, Africa, the coast. So fascinating stuff. And I love this interview and I hope you enjoy it. And here's my interview with Amanda and Katie from the Loggerhead Marine Center. We got introduced to Loggerhead back when I was 16, 17. I don't know. It was, it's been forever now. And then we, we come to Juno beach every summer and um, we're still hoping we can go this year. I don't I know. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's end of July is when we're expected okay. to, to come. But we've been taking our kids to the center since they were really little. And now, um, you know where you guys have your height chart next to yeah. the loggerhead? Yeah. Uh, we stay in there every time we come and we're like, oh my gosh, they really are growing. Um, That's but, neat. Yeah. But how long have, have you guys been an organization? Yeah. So um, that answer is a little convoluted, but we have been um, doing research for 46 years. Um, but as an organization, this year was our 36th wow. year. 
Um, so Eleanor Fletcher, our founder, before she actually formally created a center, she was actually um, hosting educational classes out of her apartment complex and her condo. So um, she actually did that and she was not too far from the beach. She was just a little inland and she'd go to the beach that night and she knows she noticed that there were so many sea turtles um and then she noticed the poachers and she noticed people interfering with the turtles and she knew that they were endangered so at the time there weren't a lot of um outspoken conservationists in this part of florida so all the outspoken conservationists kind of knew each other okay and uh, one of them actually had um, the ability to give re- give out research permits. And so Eleanor Fletcher got a research permit for a certain chunk of the beach um, to actually do research on nesting leatherbacks, loggerheads, and uh, greens. And so our research data actually goes back 46 years, but she didn't formally create a center until 36 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. interesting. And I know um, you guys track a lot of the turtles that, that you guys bring in and rehab and send out. So over the 36 years, have you seen the same turtles migrate back and, and come back? Or are they once they're here, do they disperse and go somewhere? No. Yeah, that's a great question. So one of our researchers' favorite stories is about a sea turtle named Juno. Um, and so this sea turtle first nest, or we we have documented her first nesting in 2001. Um, just to clarify, so the sea turtles may nest and our researchers may not encounter the turtle on the beach. They go out there every night and they try to see every turtle nesting and document it, but it is possible that one could come up and they've missed it. Yeah. Yeah. So the earliest documentation of Juno nesting was in 2001. And over the years, she's actually come back and nested. Um, Not every year, but uh, we most recently saw her this year. So that was pretty cool. Um, and why researchers are like Juno so much is uh, she is really beaten up. She has scars and injuries. Uh, every time she comes back, she has a new injury. And it just gives them hope that she's been nesting really for almost 20 years on our beach. And despite all of these encounters, um, you know, she still prevails and comes back and lays her eggs. Yeah. And how old do you think she is? Um, so our researchers really don't know. Oh, says Katie. <laughs> hey, Katie. Hi. Hold on. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Hi, Katie. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for hopping on. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. We Katie, were. Just, I was hearing the story of Juno, and she's been coming since 2001. And uh, and then I was asking approximately how old do we think Juno is? Okay. Wow. <laughs> It's a fun story. (laughs) So um, our researchers don't know the ages of our turtles. Um, It's really hard to determine. They only know that a turtle will begin laying eggs once they've reached full adulthood, which is typically around the age of 35, they estimate. Um, After that, they really don't know. So we'll say that Juno first, if she truly did first start nesting in 2001, we, we still don't know that either. But mm-hmm. say she did, say she was 35, then she would be about 55 now. Um, but yeah, the age of a sea turtle is something that researchers have not been able to determine. Oh, okay. And so Katie, what do you do at um, the center? Yeah, I'm the conservation manager at Loggerhead. Um, so our conservation department is focused on providing solutions to man-made threats facing sea turtles. Um, so we work, as you can imagine, a lot with marine debris, um, but also various different man-made um, harmful things to turtles. Yeah. yeah. And then, Amanda, do you run the social media accounts as well? Is that part of your role? Because I just, I love your guys' Instagrams and because we miss the beach so much right now, like we're, every time you post something, we just stare at it for what seems like five minutes. <laughs> just like, oh, we need that. I'm glad that you guys like that. Um, it's it's a collaborative effort. So I I oversee a lot of the marketing department's digital efforts. That's my background. Um, so a lot of strategy, SEO. Um, and then with, you know, COVID, 
stepping into a little bit of the photography, but we have uh, two other uh, members that assist a lot with our digital efforts um, as well. And Cassidy helps a lot with the social media. So yeah, tag team effort between us on that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting time with no one on the beach. It's a lot easier to go out there and capture photos than when we have like 20 people (laughs) around us. So, and, and maybe this is more of a question for Katie, but have you noticed since the beaches are empty, the, like everything's cleaner? Has there been a drastic change? Um, so drastic, I am unsure of. We actually have been, um, from a marine debris perspective, trying to stay off the beach as well, um, just because we don't want to encourage anyone to be out there. Um, but from a beachgoer standpoint, yes, it, there are, is less debris from that. But we do find a lot of stuff washes up from other places. Um, the ocean currents actually work as almost a conveyor belt. So they'll take debris from other shores and deposit it onto other beaches. Um, so a lot of the debris we're finding is actually not from the U.S. But that being said, a lot of our debris is being taken to other beaches as well. Um, so we are still finding things from other places washing up, and I'm sure other other beaches are are finding the same yeah yeah have you seen the pictures of certain places like in Italy and France and snow ones going there the water that usually runs through the town and the rivers are actually really clear now yeah it's yeah that's really really great environmentally I think we're seeing a lot of a lot of different changes like that yeah Um, I would say one thing that is usually like a problem on our beaches is bonfires um and they're definitely we saw i went out with the research team two weeks ago and we did see one but um that has definitely decreased because a lot of people aren't aware that they can't have bonfires during nesting season um and and you're supposed to get a permit anyway but a lot of people don't realize that either so that's definitely gone down and talking to our researchers the amount of like obstacles, um, you know, kids will dig holes and build sandcastles and they forget to knock them down or their parents don't inform them to knock them down. People leave coolers a lot of the time. Uh, people leave fishing gear a lot of the time. So just like left items have definitely decreased from their perspective. Yeah, that's good. So can you talk more about that? Because I think a lot of people don't know when you're building a sandcastle to you know, tear it down before you leave. Um, and obviously the small stuff like pick up your trash, but you know as well as I do, that never happens. But can you, from a sea turtle perspective, why is that important? Yeah, so um, sea turtles, uh, from the time that they're born, when they're hatchlings, they only have about a one in 1,000 chance of survival. Um, right now it's actually estimated that that chance is even lower odds due to the plague of microplastics, which Katie can speak more in depth on later. Um, So any obstacle or um, any type of disorientation really lowers their chances even more. So when sea turtles lay their eggs, they only have like a certain amount of energy to come on shore. It's really, it's really grueling, right? It's a rigorous effort to get onto the beach, lug themselves up and find a nest. They don't always actually lay eggs. So um, what we say is like sometimes they have a false crawl, which is when for some reason, maybe something interfered with them. They saw a light, they heard a noise, something like that. They decide not to lay their eggs. Sometimes it's just weather or like the sand isn't what they wanted it to be. Um, But that does kind of waste their energy and then they go back in. Um, So it could be natural causes, but sometimes it is interference of people. Um, People, beachgoers are walking on the beach and they see a nesting turtle come out of the water and they're amazed, which is amazing. We love that they're captivated, but sometimes they stand in front of the turtle. And if you block a turtle's path during nesting, it it really confuses them and uh, disorients them. And so that could actually cause them to false crawl and go back into the ocean. And that's the same with hatchlings too. So uh, beachgoers, have the opportunity to witness emergences which are really beautiful and rare to actually see where that nest kind of boils and all the hatchlings go out um, and luckily a lot of our locals know to stay uh, out of the way of the hatchlings 
and kind of make a path if you're going to stand near them, a wide enough path where the hatchlings can go out uh, between the onlookers. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't know and they stand around the uh, erupting nest and they actually block the way of the hatchlings and that disorients them. And the thing with hatchlings is they're actually born attached to uh, an egg sac um, that actually is like a protein pack for them. It's like a little boost of energy that when they're born, they absorb it. And it's enough to get them out to the Sargasso Sea, which is about five miles. So if they have to go in on opposite direction of the ocean, they're actually depleting that energy sac. So when they uh, emerge, you want them to have the most direct path out to that Sargasso Sea. And if it's at night, you know, uh, white lights on the beach can disorient them and cause them to go up on the road or up into um, the sand dunes. Or if it's during, uh, or, you know, during the morning, if it's people or if people have left sand castles or holes and they fall into the holes, they get trapped. Um, or if the sand castle, it's a lot of energy for them to actually get over that barrier. And it's the same with the nesting turtles too. If they have to climb over anything, um, there, you know, the topography of the beach changes every single night, which I don't think is something that people realize. Um, and so these turtles are already having to deal with the natural obstacles of maybe, um, you know, sometimes there will be like big drop-offs or a lot of driftwood will wash ashore. And so they already may have to navigate those items. They really don't need any more other items <laughs> to navigate and, you know, go around. Yeah. Um, Katie, so um, Amanda mentioned like the, the plastic and, and so can you also then talk into that about, you know, that, and then I know you guys are doing, you know, we just came off Earth Day. So I'm, I'm loading you with questions real quick. <laughs> um, we live in, like, I'm in St. Louis right now. I was telling Amanda, we go every summer down to Juneau. Oh. So when we're there, we're very hyper aware of recycling. And we recycle here, but it's lost of the direct effect middle of the United States has on Southeast Florida. So if you can kind of share all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So an estimated over 8.5 million metric tons of plastic enters our ocean every single year. Um, and that's a big number. It's, it's yeah. hard to visualize. It's kind of hard to imagine um, 8.5 million tons, but that's the equivalent of an entire garbage truck of plastic being dumped in the ocean every minute of every day for a year. And plastic's lightweight, so that's a lot, a lot of plastic. Um, and the problem with this plastic is once it enters our marine environment, it's, it never goes away. It just breaks down over time into smaller and smaller pieces. And it just, it, it actually enters our food chain, um, the marine food chain. So it's broken down into such small pieces that even microscopic plankton ingests this plastic. Um, and all the toxins and chemicals that are associated with that plastic as it's floating around, it's absorbing that. And that enters the food chain as well at, a, at the very bottom level. So it works its way up and just gets more and more potent as it reaches the top. And that's not only scary for our turtles, but it's also scary for us because we are part of that food chain or anyone who eats seafood. Um, but directly for our turtles, we do find that 100% of all of the post-hatchling sea turtles that enter our hospital have plastics in their stomachs. Um, so this is a really scary thing because if the ones that we're seeing that are entering our hospital have this plastic, we all the ones that we don't see, we don't know what it's doing to them as well. Um, so this this plastic, when it's out there in smaller pieces, it looks like food to these turtles. Um, they're programmed to kind of eat anything that looks like their natural food sources that's going past their faces. Um, and right now, a majority of that is just microplastics. It's just plastic pieces. Um, so they're loading up on this plastic. It has no nutritional value for them. And it kind of just um, gets stuck in their stomachs and in their intestines, and it doesn't allow them to pass food anymore. So essentially, either they'll, they'll starve or they'll just, they'll have no nutrients. So they'll enter our hospital or they'll just die out in the, um, out in the ocean. So this actually is a big thing. So recycling um, for many items is really great, but really what we all need to do collectively as, as a society is really reduce our, our plastic use. Um, that's really ultimately how we're going to be able to save all of our marine life and all of our oceans um, from being just overwhelmed by this plastic problem. 
Um, so by reducing your use, you're really able to help out with everything. And it can be just something simple every single day. If you're like, hey, I use a straw for every drink I drink. And if you just say like, maybe I don't need to. Um, that's just, just one item can really help. And if you look through your everyday life and you're like, huh, my toothbrush is plastic and I do throw it away every couple of months. We do find a lot of toothbrushes during our beach cleanups. So it's something that people really don't realize is a plastic item. And these items, even if you're landlocked, can reach the ocean. Um, they can go through the storm drains and they'll end up actually out in the ocean. Um, they'll enter it through rivers and streams. So really no matter where you are, your choices and um, your actions can really impact our oceans and our marine life. Yeah. So I didn't even think about the toothbrush. Right. Obviously water bottles. And so we, you know, we have like the the mugs and, and whatever. Um, what are some other day-to-day -day things? I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking like, oh, well, there's always plastic on something that we get from the grocery store that you have to cut off before you open. Just all of that. And we can't help that necessarily yeah. as an individual. But what else can, what are some simple items that, like I said, like the toothbrush, I would have never thought yeah. of. Yeah, no, love this question. We actually recently for Earth Day just were we were talking with our our gift store about all the new items that they've been able to take in that are substitutes for disposable plastic items. Um, and a lot of them, honestly, right now we all have a lot of time inside. So if if you just look around, start in your kitchen and just look around and be like, hmm what disposable plastic items are in here and how can I educate myself about the alternatives that there are? Um, so even something as simple as, I guess, in your bathroom, you can look at your, your soaps, your shampoo, right? That comes in a plastic, plastic container that eventually you're going to throw away. But there are alternatives like the shampoo bars. Um, you could even look at the flossers. We find a lot of those floss picks yeah. on the beaches. You can replace that for a more sustainable option. I think they're glass containers that have like silk um, floss in them that you can you can replace that with. Um, what are some other items? So and also reusing things. So if you have a jar, um, you have a jar of I guess tomato sauce. You can reuse that jar to store other items later. So just looking at that and plastic bags in your sandwich bags, maybe there are tons of alternatives. So you can use bees, bees wrap, I think it's called, um, which is just this reusable bees wax material that you can wrap your sandwiches in or use to cover bowls and you use it again and again and again. And by switching to these alternatives and really looking at our lives and our everyday choices, we can reduce so much plastic. And even if you are throwing it away, like what is throwing something away? It's it's not gonna it goes away from your site, but it doesn't go away it ultimately. Go away. Yeah. yeah. So there are a lot of a lot of alternatives, but and yeah. this is obviously we're talking about ocean and, and turtles, but really this is such a global thing outside of just the beaches, like how we use our own goods and what we when we discard those, what that really does to our planet as a whole. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Such a bigger thing. Yeah, and as consumers, we have so much power to drive the change away from disposable plastic items to bamboo and alternative sources. Um, so it's really, really a powerful thing we all have as individuals that we can really drive that change. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Um, I'm going to kind of switch topics again. Go back to the sea turtles. Yeah. And how many how many nests have you counted so far this season? Um. I think Amanda has that information. She might be muted. Yeah, I think so. Hold on. <laughs> I got myself. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have that. Um, so they actually just sent me the numbers. Uh, they update it every morning. Okay. Um, so let me just check that email. Uh, so we are at 102 leatherback nests, which means that they only saw one last night because we had 101 the day before. Okay. Um, leatherback season is slowing down. Um, we did see more leatherbacks this year than in past, or we had more leatherback nests this year than in past years. Um, but we are, we're coming to the end of their nesting period. So a few weeks ago, we actually, um, at the end of March, we actually documented nine sea turtles in one night leatherbacks, which I, was one of our highest nights. Yeah. I think the night before last night, they had 11. Oh, nests. wow. Okay. So yeah, yeah. So that's just probably <laughs> this. 
Um, and then we have 53 loggerheads. So we have 150 nests total right now. Okay. And, and that will go through like August? Through October 31st, um, we have had a sea turtle lay, um, a green sea turtle lay a nest after that date. So um, March 1st, October 31st is sea turtle nesting season in South Florida. However, this year we marked our first leatherback nest actually in the end of February. So um, that's kind of an approximate date range. You know, sea turtles don't have calendars. They're not quite sure. Um, but yeah, uh, last year we actually marked nearly 21,000 nests. And that was a record high. Um, it was a high year for greens. They nest in every other year. They have higher counts. So this year we are expecting to have fewer green nests, but um, it will truly be interesting to see. Uh, you know, it's always interesting to see what happens. We never really know. So 21,000 last year. Yeah. That's insane. That's so cool. Yeah, so it was. <laughs> We've, um, and Katie, I told Amanda before you jumped on, um, like we take our kids every year when we come down multiple times to the center. Um, but even remind me, what are the differences between a leatherback, a loggerhead, and then a green? Oh gosh. So yeah, so there are a lot of different um, differences between them. The leatherbacks are actually a, not a hard shelled turtle. Um, so they are massive turtles. Um, they're actually really dark in color and they're more pelagic. So we see that they're out in the open ocean. Um, they swim very, very large distances. And the reason they are actually more of a soft bodied turtle is because of the depths that they have to dive to, or they're able to dive to uh, because the pressure underwater creates a lot. It, it creates a lot of pressure the deeper you go. So they're, they're soft bodied to be able to, um, accommodate that pressure. Um, so they feed off of jellyfish. They're very cool. Um, I don't know if you want to alternate turtles, Amanda, if you want to take like oh. greens or loggerheads and then yeah. I'll do the next one. Sure. Yeah. I'll take greens. Um, so greens are my favorite. Uh, I really love leatherbacks, but I just, I feel very aligned with the greens. Um, something that I like about them is as juvenile sea turtles, they're typically smaller than the other juvenile turtles, but um, they actually end up being the second largest sea turtle species, which, so when they're younger, I think they kind of deceive people. People think that they're always going to be small and cute. Um, and then they, as they grow up and become sub-adults and adults, they end up being absolutely massive. Um, and so they typically have a lighter starburst carapace. It is a hard shell. Um, so loggerheads, Kemp's Ridley's, all of Ridley's and greens. They all have that like keratin shell, just like your nail. Leatherbacks, as Katie mentioned, are the only ones with the soft shell. And uh, the greens are the ones that have kind of like that starburst pattern. And uh, they're really fast in the water too. They love the reef systems and they love eating plants. That's why I say I identify with them. I'm like a plant eater. Um, and uh, their greens love to keep themselves clean. Um, so they're, they're always, if you see them out in the reef systems or even here at our hospital, actually, they love to rub their body up against surfaces um, and clean their shell or just even kind of scratch an itch. If you saw on our Instagram the other day. It, you know, <laughs> it, it was so awesome. That little cute guy, yeah. So yeah, they're, they're definitely like more, I would say one of the most playful species. Um, and yeah, that, you know, we have, we typically see a lot of greens at our centers because they are on that reef system. And unfortunately, uh, that they're kind of in the path of boats. So a lot of the greens that we do see at our center have had, um, boat strike injuries and buoyancy injuries. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's green, right? So now we're on loggerheads. The loggerhead, yeah. Our, our namesake. So um, our loggerhead sea turtles, I'm actually, we're a big diving community in Jupiter and Juno Beach. Um, so loggerheads, greens, and actually um, hawksbills are the ones that we see most commonly out there on the reefs when we're out diving. Um, the loggerheads are, again, a hard-bodied turtle. Um, they have the hard carapace and they are probably one of the more common ones we see at our hospital and, and on our beaches nesting. Um, we do have rec 
most often um, those loggerhead nests out there. Um, these loggerheads, they again live up to their names because they do have pretty large heads um but in comparison to a green sea turtle that has kind of like a pea head compared to their body size um and those large heads are used and those large beaks are used for crushing um different their different food sources so like crabs and and different um different food sources that they need to need to eat so they're pretty cool we see quite a few of them and we often have a lot of hatchlings um during nesting season that come into our hospital that are loggerheads. So we do see tons of them out there. And they also, um, unfortunately, occasionally come in with unintended boat strike wounds as well. Yeah. And how I, loggerheads are the largest, right? Leatherbacks are the largest. Leatherback. Uh, and how yeah. big can a leatherback get, like feet wise? Yeah. So they can get almost as big as a punch buggy car. Um, they, they really can, they can get huge. Yeah. And um, you really don't, don't realize that as much because you don't, you, like recreational divers don't don't see them commonly so when they're coming up the beach you're like oh my gosh is that a car is that a turtle um so they are the largest species like i want to say about seven eight feet right Max, yeah average um that the ones that we see on our beach we see a smaller um yeah. a subpopulation of the species so our, ours are not as big as uh, other ones that have been documented in the world. So ours are typically about six feet. But as Katie said, the larger ones can definitely get up to like seven or eight. Um, yeah, yeah, and ours are usually about like 600, 700 pounds, um, but they can get up to over a thousand. And actually this nesting season, one of the nights I went out, we actually saw two about a thousand pound ones. Um, and so our director of research actually said that that was kind of unusual for us. Um, they were both sea turtles that had not, we had not previously documented them nesting on our beach before. Um, so that, that was something. And, you know, after every nesting season, they always go through their data and look to see if there's trends or reasons mm -hmm. why um, this might be happening. Yeah, what are, what are some of the trends of why um, maybe turtles come for a one time only or they keep coming back to the same location? Does that have to do with current temperature? Yeah, so that's actually something. There's not a lot of data right now about um, leatherback migration habitat ha habits. Um, so as Katie mentioned, like even recreational divers don't really see them out in the wild. Um, the only research the science community has on leatherbats is primarily when the leatherback is nesting on the beach. Um, so our researchers are actually working on a very comprehensive study where they're taking blood, fat, and plasma samples, um, and they're actually able to do determine some of the foraging habits of these leatherbats. And based upon those foraging and those toxicity reports, they can identify where our leatherbacks have been. Um, they also look at, so we, we actually get sea turtles that we've tagged and they come nest on our beach. But then we also get leatherbacks that have been tagged by another center and come to our beach. Okay. And these are called neophytes. And um, so the ones that have been tagged by another center and come to our beach, we can actually kind of check in with them. Um, so we have had ones that have been farther um, than Florida that have nested on our beach, but then we do have ones that have been from Florida. So they don't, right, as of right now, they don't have answers as to why, but this project that they're working on is hoping to actually answer some of those questions. Cool. Very cool. Can you, um, we, I asked uh, my kids and about some questions that they wanted to know, so I do have that. Oh, awesome. Here we get to that. So <laughs> how do baby sea turtles breathe under the sand was a question from my almost seven-year-old son. That's a great question. So um, when they're actually in their clutch, they're not like breathing through the eggs, just like a baby would be in the side inside of a human mother's stomach, right? That's kind of like their egg capsule. Um, so uh, when an emergence happens, right, they actually, um, they sense uh, sea turtles hatched based upon the temperature of the sand. So they're incubating in that clutch for it depends, uh, it varies depending on species, but on average about 60 to 80 days. So they're incubating in this clutch and kind of when they're getting around to their specific 
patch day, um, the ones at the top start feeling the temperature of the sand and typically they wait until the sand is cooler, um, usually meaning that it's nighttime. However, we do see daytime emergences that does happen. And so uh, basically the little hatchlings at the top start breaking out of their eggs with their, their little noses, their beaks, and then they kind of sound the alarm and it trickles down into the rest of the chamber and all of uh, the other hatchlings get the message essentially and they all start kind of making a sand slope to, di or to climb out on the sand slope out of uh, the clutch the egg chamber and then they make their way into the water kind of as as a pack however um our researchers do uh exca excavate nests um about three days after not all nests but marked nests and so they'll go and they'll actually dig up the nest and they'll find um they'll actually take a, a inventory of the eggs and so they'll mark the ones that successfully hatched out ones that um, didn't hatch at all, ones that were pipped where basically the, um, the hatchling died as they were coming out of the shell. Um, and then they do have ones that are like live pip where they basically are alive halfway out of their shell. They just couldn't quite get out of the shell. And then sometimes there are a few that are kind of left over. Um, so yes, if our researchers didn't kind of go in about three days after the leftover hatchlings might not make it um but most of the nests usually do hatch out at the same time yeah that's cool um can you tell me about the center and and how do you guys find the turtles and what you do as far as the rehabilitation process and then releasing them we've gotten to see a, a handful of the release days which are so fun it's so amazing the community that just comes in for an hour and a half or an hour to watch a sea turtle go back in. It, it's it yeah. is such an event and I love it. I love that it's such an like organic event to, to watch something. So kind of take us through the entire process of rescuing, rehabilitation, release. Yeah, so um, our sea turtle hospital and uh, rehab team work with Florida Fish and Wildlife um, Conservation Commission, and we are on a sea turtle stranding hotline. And um, part of that hotline actually ties into our RPI initiative, which I'll have Katie touch on um, later. But um, so we'll actually receive calls about beachgoers or fishermen that have found an injured or stranded or sick sea turtle. Um, so this could happen when a lot of our commercial fishermen are out there actually catching uh, fish for the local restaurants and they may see a sea turtle floating and they'll, they'll call us or they'll, they'll call FWC and they'll talk through um, with the officials of what to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we actually walk those individuals through putting the turtle on board and waiting for us to come out there. Other times we actually go out and rescue the turtle. Um, it really depends on, you know, the situation. Um, once we receive the turtle, we then assess it. So within the first 24 hours, they do all routine um, tests, just like if you were to go to the hospital. Um, they do blood weight measurements, and then they wash that turtle. In the first few days, they put the turtle in fresh water. Um, this helps uh, take away any kind of epibiota, um, so barnacles or leeches or anything else that might have adhered to their carapace, their shells. And this happens when a turtle is chronically debilitated um, or sick, which chronically debilitated is kind of a symptom of other ailments and injuries. Um, it's kind of like when you get the flu, you're just in overall poor health, you don't feel well, you're run down, you're probably not eating well. And then that can cause um, epibiota to start growing and attach because you're kind of slowing down and you're not fending for yourself. Um, so they'll put the turtle in fresh water in a really low tank with low water. Um, so we can just kind of monitor that turtle's health and see how you know they're swimming and they're moving and if, and if anything else kind of 
comes to light. Um, and then at that point, they'll reassess the turtle and they'll actually prescribe a specific treatment plan and therapy plan. Um, sometimes this is a mix of physical therapy and medication and sometimes surgery. Um, so every, every turtle is different. Um, you know, we're going to treat boat strike injuries differently than we treat, yeah, like anemia or anything like that. Um, so every turtle is here for a different amount of time. Um, earlier this year in September, we had a turtle come in named Today, and Today was wrapped in monofilament fishing line. Um, so after four days, the turtle was completely healthy enough to be released. We don't have too many turtles that are released within a few days, but this year we, we have had a few. We've had Today, and then most recently we had Phelps. Phelps came in um, with a similar situation. So sometimes it's something that's a quick fix, you know, just taking off uh, the monofilament line or the marine debris and releasing the turtle. And other times it's more complicated. So one of our most complicated um, turtles that we have right now is uh, Galapagos. Um, Galapagos uh, has had um, several different issues and um, we've kind of said that the turtle is kind of our problem child uh, of the center um, just because you know he he's gotten really close to being released several times and then unfortunately another ailment has occurred um, so right now he has definitely been at our center the longest um, right now and then we've had other patients too you probably remember this patient scallywag came in yeah with a missing flipper from a shark bite and scally scallywag was here for um a little over a year and a half i believe so um you know it varies on average most turtles will be here for four to eight months um that's kind of the typical range however there are outliers yeah. and then yeah, we, once they're ready for release, um, they have to be off medication and treatment plans for two weeks and stay in the green. So meaning that all their levels are great, their white blood cell count are great, um, they don't need any, kind, any type of treatment, everything's awesome. And then at that point, our director of rehab will call FWC, give kind of the information to FWC, FWC will either approve or deny, usually approve, um, our request. And then they give us information on where that turtle should be released from. So typically loggerheads are released from our beach. That's why we have um, all of our public releases, our loggerhead releases. Um, greens are usually released a little north. Kemp's Ridley's are usually released south. Except with Jane, Jane was a rare case due to COVID and all the parks being closed. We actually released Jane up in Cape Canaveral, um, but uh, most of the Kemp's Ridleys that we release, we actually release out down in like the Keys or um, like kind of the southern tip of Florida. That's cool. I uh, like I said, it's such a fun experience um, watching a release. How many have you? How many have you released since COVID? I feel like, well, yeah. Um, I don't know. We watch them on online. Let's see. Um, I would have to count. I know we've since COVID, we've definitely released Jane, Arwen, Phelps, Jane, Arwen, Phelps, Marie, Citrus, wow. Oki, and who do you say, Katie? I just said we had three on Earth Day. Oh, yeah. So I think six. Um, I, I may have been missing one uh, if there was one that snuck in there. But I think six um, since, since. And right before COVID, we actually had released two sea turtles. Um, and then we've been receiving a lot, actually. We've been receiving so many that we've actually had to turn some away. Um, so it's definitely been busy. Yeah. And um, how much longer until the expansion is finished? Um, yeah, so one of the positives of COVID has been our construction has actually been progressing faster. Um, so that's kind of a silver lining um, because our the center is closed and the park is closed. The construction uh, team can actually 
they don't have to stop their work as much for the public coming in and out of the center. Um, so it's amazing. In the past few weeks, we have already built like the second story on our expansion. So it's really coming along. Um, right now, we're still saying that like our grand opening will be about early February of 2021. Um, however, it, it just really depends if it progresses sooner or if, you know, something delays it. But right now we're definitely ahead of schedule. So we're hoping it stays that way. Knock on wood. Yeah. Um, what's the news down there as far as when, cause I know some Florida beaches are open. Um, I, I have a personal opinions that uh, it's a little soon, but whatever about that. Um, what are you guys hearing and thinking about when uh, Juno will be open and then when you guys will be open again? Truly, we don't know. Um, we have a unique situation because we're a center located within a county park. Mm -hmm. um, so if the park is closed, we actually have to be closed um, because we can't let people into the park. Right. So our schedule is really dependent on the county schedule. Uh, the county has informed us that they'll be giving us updates every seven days. So um, the next update, we just had an update yesterday. Um, so seven days from yesterday, we'll have another update. The most recent update was that we're, we're still closed at this time. Um, uh, what we've been hearing is that around May 15th, we should have more information on a reopening date. But yeah. That's kind of what it is here too. It's indefinite. We'll reassess middle of May. And, uh, yeah. I think it's better to, you know, just take it every few days and reassess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, okay. So a couple questions real quick before we get off. These will be kind of like rapid fire. Okay. Um, for both of you, favorite turtle that's come in, favorite patient. Ooh. Um, I really like Zuby. <laughs> I really liked his name. He was a little um, blogger head and he just zooms around. So, Zuby. Okay. Katie and I actually share like the current favorite patient. Uh, I also love Zuby. Uh, he's, we don't really see um, loggerheads of his size. Um, he's a post hatchling loggerhead, but he, he's more developed. So he's a little bigger. Um, so he's very, a very unique patient for us to have. Um, outside of him, I would say one of my favorite sea turtles was Scallywag because I was actually here the day he came in. Oh, and uh, yeah, I was here when he came in and he was in really grave condition. Um, most people didn't think that he was going to make it. So it was kind of cool to see him prevail and actually get released. Yeah. Um, will there be Turtle Fest 2020? Because yeah. that, we, buy, we, we buy the hats every year, so it's really important. Oh, awesome. Yes. Uh, so, yes, we, we're hoping, you know, of course, like COVID has changed a little bit of everything, but we are hoping that next year, Turtle Fest 2021 will be kind of one of the most creative, innovative, new, exciting uh, Turtle Fest events we've ever had. Um, we've been really waiting to kind of um, transform Turtle Fest and take it to the next level. And we were going to do it this year, but as our construction actually was ahead of schedule, um, it posed some logistical plans and we had made that announcement and then, you know, COVID happened. So it, it kind of worked out anyway. So next year, next March, we're really hoping that with our new expansion, we'll have a sky deck. Um, we're really hoping to bring everyone in all day and transform it into kind of a conservation village and really showcase some of our blue table partners that Katie works really hard on that program where we work with local restaurants to kind of showcase their sustainable skills. So cross cool. your fingers, but yes, uh, yeah. Turtle Fest is definitely Christmas around here. So um, we are all truly hoping that Turtle Fest 2021 will be able to happen. And I hope we can be there. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what can local partners and even, um, I wouldn't by any means call myself a local because we don't live there yet. Our plan is to move to Juneau. Um, 
but what can we do? How can uh, small businesses and um, how can we help? How can we help the, the center? Yeah, Katie, I'll let you take yeah. it from a conservation point. Yeah, well, just um, Amanda touched on our Blue Table program, and those are some local community partners um, that are businesses that just strive to reduce single-use plastics in their establishments and then also promote sustainable seafood. Um, so really just, just looking at their buying options and seeing what they can replace um, single-use items with. Um, but also just educating others, just spreading the word about what the issues are and then um, who they can support that's, that's helping them and come and donate their time or, or anything like that. So really just, just being aware <laughs> is really important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, it really always helps to just kind of share information. So as Katie said, being aware but also just trying to have that conversation with other people um, and keep the movement um, going. I think one of the biggest issues with the environmentalism movement is it loses traction a lot of the time. So consumers really get hooked on one type of animal and they get invested into that animal for a little bit and then they kind of move on to the, the next thing. Um, but it's a larger conversation. Yes, we focus on sea turtles, but we're using the sea, sea turtles as a global symbol, um, a global ambassador, because sea turtles don't just stay in one area. Um, our sea turtles have been documented. The ones we see on our beaches have been documented in Australia. And so they really are using the ocean currents and everything in their habitat is coming from the whole world. Like Katie said, our trash is ending up um, across the world and you know other countries' trash like South Africa is ending up on our beaches. So we're all in this together. We're connected by the ocean currents and therefore we just need everyone to keep having the discussion about um, you know conservation as a whole and just trying to improve the health of our planet, the health of animals and ultimately ourselves because it's all interlinked. Yeah, I love that. Gosh, I love that. <laughs> uh, we're, we're called to be good stewards of, of this world and um, every little thing we do matters. Uh, it matters to the turtles, it matters to the other uh, animals, both land and sea, but really then it, it matters to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love, it. that was beautiful. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. No. <laughs> um, it's, it's true, you know, like something that um, Katie didn't mention, but has mentioned a lot is she mentioned about the microplastics being the biggest threat to our sea turtles and marine life, but something that, you know, um, we talk about is it's in our food too, you know, it, it's in the food chain and it works its way all the way up to us. Katie said it great in her, v, uh, her VCC um, show with education the other day. And, you know, they've estimated, researchers have estimated that we're ingesting about a credit card's worth of plastic every week. And so, you know, and Katie just said this, uh, we have a video about our retail efforts coming out in a little bit. Um, Katie talked about how when, you know, plastic's ingrained in our clothes and it goes into our water system as well, you know, it's so ingrained into our society and we, we can't be ignorant to believe that it's not affecting us. It's not just affecting animals. Right. That's a great point. Great point. Um, okay, last question. Three fun facts about sea turtles that most normal, you know, people like me wouldn't know. Oh, that's a good question. Um, on the spot. Okay. The largest sea turtle species survives primarily on jellyfish. Okay. So leatherbacks only eat jellyfish. jellyfish. Yeah. It's a pretty good one. That's cool. I would say one that I recently learned is that sea turtles um, can have lay twins in one egg. Um, I I had known this, but I, I didn't know that we've seen it a few times. And when sea turtles do lay twins, those twins share identical DNA, uh, which I find really interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and um, because it is rare and it's hard to catch in the wild, there's not a lot of research on it. So um, we don't know much more than that, but we do know that it's identical DNA, which is yeah. kind of you, One more? Can you, can you pull out one more? 
I, yeah, I have one that I like too. So I think a lot of people don't realize that um, sea, sea turtles can mate within species. Um, so we actually see hybrids in the wild. Um, and we actually have every season, we've pretty much documented a hybrid hawksbill and loggerhead. Um, and so again, it, it's something that is, it, it's occurring, but it's not occurring in large enough quantities to kind of warrant research. However, our center is actually exploring doing more research on it in the upcoming years. That's cool. Well, thank you guys so much. Where can people find you, you know, online, watch the videos that you guys post, where you wanna share all that real quick? Yeah, so um, first of all, our website, marinelife.org, um, it really houses everything, our patient updates, you can, check in every week and follow the progress of your favorite patient or all our patients as a whole. Um, if you have kids or if you are a kid and you want to dive into conservation, we have our education team is really amazing about carrying on Eleanor Fletcher's belief that education should be free and unrestricted to anyone. Um, and so there's a ton of free educational resources for kids and also educators. Um, so we give lesson plans to them as well. And then, you know, we always have our, our blogs and our nesting updates on our website too. And then if you just want to kind of uh, follow us on social media, Loggerhead Marine Life Center on most channels, except Twitter is Loggerhead MC um, because the handle length. And our YouTube channel, it's not large, but it is growing. Something people can expect in 2020 and 2021 is a lot more in-depth videos. Um, so that's something that we're looking forward to doing this year as well. Yeah. And I love, like I said, I, every morning I check your guys' Instagram because I want to see pictures of the turtles and the ocean. So <laughs> well, thank so you. Because right now that's keeping me sane <laughs> and hopeful that we can be down there in a couple months. Yeah, yeah. So when are you planning on moving? You said oh, gosh. I we've been talking about it um for a couple years now. Like seriously, our kids are almost ten and almost seven. So either we need to do it quick before they hit middle school, yeah. I feel like, or we'll wait until they're out of high school. But um like this year we're coming down for about a month. We'll spend this um a month That's in summer. Fun. And the goal is just to kind of keep coming more and more and then maybe never return. So, uh, <laughs> and well, I mean, for a kid, I grew up in this area and it is like, I mean, if you want to be in the outdoors and like Katie is a scuba diver, she's always out and she's basically a living mermaid. You're really into that life. Um, this is a great and then if you like, like I, I, I can't scuba dive, so I do a lot inland too. Um, we have great hiking trails, walking trails, biking trails, running trails. So definitely an, an outdoor lifestyle if your kids are into that. We are. Yeah. And so St. Louis, we I got introduced to like the West Palm area because the Cardinals do spring training down in yeah. Jupiter. So mm -hmm. started going as a kid. Um, and here in St. Louis, like it's beautiful today. Like it's gorgeous. I think the high is like 73 75 right but our winters are awful and they start around december and it goes through end of march and the summers are just as hot here as they are down there in juno if you guys have the ocean breeze and we have nothing and so i'm like if i'm going to be hot i want to be hot in florida next to the ocean and we're we're water people and i just what i want to do is i want to like sell my business and just go and open up like a little like jet ski shop and just have people like just take people on tours and have fun and laugh. And that's what I want. Yeah. Or like paddleboard tours, like eco tourism yes. is definitely something that's building here. Um, and something that like a lot of the places don't offer it, even like guided bike tours really aren't a thing down here. Um, and I think that we're kind of, we're seeing that, um, that craving of having like, even with loggerhead, that's something that we're expanding here. We are with our expansion as we get more staff members, we are trying to do more like naturalist led tours where we actually take groups out inland um, and and on uh, on the water as well um, and introduce them and do some guided snorkels, guided hikes. And, you know, so that's what we're trying to do at the center as well. And, and that's definitely what 
uh, the area seeing. I think, you know, this area used to be just seen as kind of like a uh, luxury destination. And now a lot of people are realizing that the biodiversity here um, is just so incredible and so unique and that we don't really work to educate everyone and, and make that a uh, highlighted feature of where we live and where people are traveling to, then it's truly a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking to an entrepreneur. So now my brain is going, oh, I can do this and that. And let's go now. Let's just move this weekend. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how I, that's like my personality. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time and I hope you guys stay safe. Um, yeah. You know, and and hopefully we can all, I don't know, see each other soon. Yeah, and stay safe as well. And let me know about your plans. Just keep in touch. Um, Because when you come down here, we'd love to take your family on like a private uh, experience. Yes. Oh, Uh, I love it. Yeah, and um, just when you come down, if you'll just remind me of your kids' names and their ages, our education team would love to put together like a little experience as well. So. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, no, of course. It's it's always fun. I, I, I love working with like the kids too, because just their faces really light up when yeah, they're on campus. So yeah, yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, guys. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thank you, thank you so much. Bye, Vince.